You're listening to Short Ditch Radio. Shoreditchradio.co.uk Hello and welcome to Licorice All Sports on Shoreditch Radio. Coming up on the show this week, the highs and lows of what was a fantastic World Cup as Germany defeated Argentina to win the tournament for the fourth time. Should we copy the Germans now? And in cricket, Alistair Cook gets the wicket and Jimmy Anderson is in the runs as England draw the first test with India with Alberto Contador pulling out of the tour at stage 10, the Open Championship and big boxing matchups. There's plenty to discuss on this week's Licorice All Sports. Hello, hello. This is Licorice All Sports. This is Shoreditch Radio. My name's Jamie and in the studio I've got Cal. Good evening. Good evening. I've also got Jim. Evening, how are we doing? Very well, very well. We've um, well, we've had a World Cup final, haven't we? It's over, finally. After 32 days, 64 matches and um, a lot of dross, but a lot of excitement as well. Um, Germany crown champions, 1-0, uh, beating Argentina after extra time. What do we make of it? Germany are deserved winners? Oh, I know, I know, Cal, you're going to... Yeah, absolutely. I called it, I called it on the you first did. show before the World Cup, but, you know, for me... To beat Brazil 7-1 in the semi-final and not go on to win the World Cup, that would have been a real shame. And we'll always remember them and how they got to the final and went on to win it. So, yeah, for me, yeah, absolutely deserved winners, especially after the first win against Portugal as well. Absolutely. Yeah, we forget they they beat them 4-0 in their opening match. Um, Ronaldo not showing up there and they they cruised through their group and uh, got through a few tricky matches. Notably Algeria after extra time in the second round. Uh, France is a narrow victory in the end, although fairly comfortably. They're the signs of, a, of true champions who can, you know, grind out their results. Yeah, but they, I mean, they look fantastic as well. Not just as a as a grinding side, but as an exciting side, as we saw in the semi final, like you mentioned, and even in the final, they looked. You know, there were flashes of brilliance. They, um, you know, when they realised that Argentina were tough to break down, they knew. You know, they had to go through another route to get the get the goal, get the win. Yeah, well, you look at the options they had as well. You know, bringing on someone like. So at that stage of the game, you know, uh, you know, such dynamism to his play, and what a finish that is from a 22-year-old in a in a World Cup final. It's what, a lovely. What win, impressed me was the way they came out in extra time, and they were really going for it. A lot of teams would hold back, go to penalties, and chance your luck. But they came out with real intent in that first half. Well, of particularly, extra time. particularly a, a German national team who are excellent at penalty shootouts. I think they've never lost one. Um, you'd have thought they'd, they'd taken their luck, um, but hey, they, they showed great intent. Uh, even before, well, it was sort of petering out towards, um, yeah, t- towards a, a, a draw towards the end of normal time. But they they still had the upper hand um, for most of that game. And you watch that extra time, and you forget that Argentina, despite being a little bit withdrawn, they had some excellent chances and probably should have scored in the first half. They had uh, Higuain with a glorious chance. You have to say he's Mr. Sitter there. And, uh, you know, Messi had a chance as well. Um, there was, a, I think it was Levetsi who was, I think it was marginally offside for his but goal. Germany had their chances as well. I mean, I yeah. think there was that header that came off the post. Um, How it is, yeah. Yeah, no. But it was a great final, I thought. For a nil-nil draw, it was a great final. Yeah, I've, I've been really impressed by the, the nil Yeah, I mean, there have been a couple of dire nil-nil draws. I, mean, uh, I think Iran-Nigeria is, is one which uh, you guys probably won't remember because there was nothing to remember. But, yeah, yeah Germany um, against Algeria. Um, Belgium-USA, which went to extra time as well. It was a nil-nil draw. It was a very tense affair. The semi-final, Holland-Argentina, was dire. Uh, I'll have to say that, but we can call it absorbing up, up into the penalty shootout. Um, but you know, it's it's been a, a World Cup of very, very exciting football, very strong attacking football, but also 
you know, very uh, impressive defensive displays as well. Absolutely. And there's always the danger when England go out after nine days in the competition that it's not going to have the same hype. Um, but I think, you know, I think the whole country were quite gripped throughout the World Cup and it's a bit of a shame that it's over now. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you just, I mean, here in London, we've just seen the amount of flags which have been flying, um, people just getting really surprisingly into it. You know, you know, when you see people at work or, you, you know, you, you see various people you, you know or you don't know that well, and you didn't really have them down as, as a football fan at all, but it's just the magic of the World Cup. It's the magic of this kind of tournament, which really yeah, envelopes people's sort of emotions, and, and that's how they get into it. Um, Argentina, I mean, were they unlucky or were they... Um, should, could they have done more? Should they have done more? I think they were wasteful. They were wasteful in the periods of the game where they had control. Um, I don't know about you boys, but when they took Lovetsi off from the right side, I thought it was a massive mistake. Yeah, you said that at the time, didn't you? You know, he was he was playing in such a direct mm. manner, and he seemed one of the only two players on the pitch, other than him, um, himself and Messi, that could get in behind Germany. Indeed, I think that that was their issue. There, I mean, they could. Was that when they brought Gargo on the defensive? Um, yeah. Uh, so I mean, they'd already no, made. The, he came. I think he came off for a forward, the one with the dodgy oh, rat with the tail. ponytail. Oh, Palazzo. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so who uh, had a great yeah, chance was, as well? Himself. He, I mean, he had a great chance at the semi-final. He got he got annoyed. <laughs> he did indeed. Yeah, enormous man. But I mean that again. That's 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 the issue. I mean they didn't want to take Messi off because even though he was knackered, he was not as scintillating best. He was noticeably not running as much as the other players because he was saving himself for certain moments and you know bursts of pace. I mean he did it in the first half. A couple of lung Hulls. busters in the first half. Exactly, yeah. but he, yeah, he wasn't at his best, but. You know, you know you've, you've got to take that risk and leave them on but then that leaves you when you do want to make a change you either go all out and have four attacking players or you stick to your three and unfortunately you have to take the likes of um, Levetsi and Higuain off I don't think Argentina deserved to win the World Cup I think they were solid without being sensational throughout the tournament and it would have been a shame and I was saying to Jim as we watched it last night it would be a shame for them to win both the semi-final and final on penalties for me that doesn't sit right that's not what you want your world champions yeah, to be definitely. indeed I but, mean that that was the first goal they conceded since the group stages that Mario gets a goal um, it shows how solid they've been defensively and De Michele is playing out of his skin unlikely is, defensive uh, exactly, heroes coming out exactly. of this exactly. and, and Ron Vlaar and uh, Ron Vlaar. I, I love Ron Vlaar amazing semi-final performance he put in against Argentina probably already Aston Villa's highlight of the season coming up uh, poor, poor Ron Vlaar I feel for him uh, having to miss I mean we haven't really spoken about the semi-finals won't go into it in too much detail but um, he missed the first penalty didn't he um, after you know, stepping up and saying, "Yeah, I'll take the first one." Apparently, people refused, and you're just going to say, "Just going to go with uh, who wants to take one in the, in that instance." Um, yeah, fair, fair play to people who step up. Apparently, there were a couple of players who you, you might have expected to take a penalty before Ron Vlaar who didn't want to. But mm. I think for me, going in, you know, obviously we start talking about the Premier League season from here on in. It'd be interesting to see how Vlaar and Di Michaelis start and. You know, sort of what sort of season they have because they've been much maligned in the in the last season. Must Both give of them you, have. It must give you such confidence coming back, knowing that you're, you know, you've been this World Cup star and you've got this. You come probably come back a more experienced uh, head, particularly at the back as well. I would say. If I was the clubs, though, I'd probably cash in. To be fair, they haven't proven it last season. I don't think they're going to. Their quality is going to increase overnight. Um, I think cash in Premier League is a completely different ball game cash in whilst you can get the money from well you're not going to get any money for Demichelis you're not going to well Man City won't anyway. he's, in his these, he's in his 30s some yeah, of these I mean, Russian clubs will come in and well, they'll pay over the odds if somebody offers 10 million for Demichelis yeah take it but it's pointless selling him when you know he's a decent option off the bench but he's not going to he's not going to do you know get any 
anything near the kind of figures we've been quoted for other players. Um, Vlar as well, yeah, he could move to like a top European side, you know, maybe Italy or somewhere like that. Um, and but that's the thing, though. I mean, Villa. That, you know, we don't want to go on to domestic side things too much, but Villa are really struggling at the moment with the players they've. Have you seen the players they've signed in the last week? Okay, yeah, I mean, you will think we've gone back in time to like two thousand and five. Marlon Harewood, no, so, you know, Kieran Richardson, Kieran Richardson, yes, and <laughs> Philippe Senderos. Oh dear, and they're in talks and getting Nicholas Bentner in as well. But it just oh, yeah, I thought we got rid of him. Yeah, exactly. You look at the side and you think, yeah, that that would have been decent about seven years ago. But now, I mean, yeah, I think, I think Richardson, to be fair, of the three of them, probably put in the most impressive performances last year. I yeah. thought he was, I thought he was okay for them. He was all right. But Send- Fuller went Senders down. Has looked shaky. Fuller went down for a long time with the conceding eighty-five goals in the process. So. Yeah. Anyway, we won't dwell too much on that. But you bring up a point actually, Carl, about uh, players getting transfers off the back of a decent World Cup performance. Um, we've seen it fail in the past. We've seen it succeed in the past as well, but. I, I don't know. I just feel the. You look at a World Cup. It's you know maximum seven games. Most players won't play seven games. They'll play three or four, maybe five. Um, is that really enough to to be able to say right? I'll I'll pay twenty five million for that guy. But we know clubs don't look at it like that. Some of the richest clubs in the world, you know, they have more money than common sense. Mm. Uh, and I think yeah, I think the whole world is watching. We're talking you know, millions, millions of people watching worldwide. Somebody will say, I want him, and they'll get him, and they'll pay over the odds for him. It's just a showcase of what's out there. I know it's only seven games, um, but yeah, I think I think people would pay over the odds after a World Cup. I think Harry Redknapp came out and said that uh, the World Cup's not a great time to be scouting players. Certainly not. Because everyone yeah. wants them. Uh, you'll be paying over the odds for them. Exactly. It it's probably it represents the worst value for money for a club. So you're saying Alexis Sanchez, if he had a really poor World Cup, would people have gone on his form from Barcelona? Would they have still got, what, £35 million for him? 35, yeah. I'd, well, you still think he would have got Sanchez that? Sanchez is slightly different, though, I think. Sanchez, he play, already plays for Barcelona, mm. already plays for Fantas. But it's these kind of, you know, they play for middle-of-the-range European side, mm. uh, which you wouldn't have seen too much of. They're, they're not necessarily all over Europe. But, and they'll go for 10 £15 million, and it won't seem like quite a lot of money, which is ridiculous to say, isn't it, Tony? Mm. It's not a lot of money. It is. But in footballing terms, it's it's not for a player, particularly an attacking player. Um, I, I always remember post-2002 World Cup uh, following Liverpool, and uh, they signed a couple of Senegalese players, El Hadjouf, for £10 million. Exactly. And uh, Salif Jao and a couple of other players as well. And at the time, because they'd had a decent showing at the World Cup, yeah, they'd beaten France, the holders, um, they looked all right, but they didn't do anything. Yeah, mm. there, was, there was sort of an untapped promise there. And uh, it doesn't always work out. That's, mm. just, that's just one example. Um, let's quickly talk about Brazil. Now, last time round, we were talking about it being a... Yeah, I mean, last week's show, Carl, you went here, but we couldn't decide who was going to win each of the matches. It was, I mean, there were two fantastic semi-final lineups. You know, Germany, Brazil, Holland, Argentina, who was going to win. And nobody predicted um, such a mauling. And, yeah, their, their defence has been picked, uh, picked out in, the, in all the analysis post-match. But where did they go from here? Because, yeah, they've not qualified... Um, you know, for this World Cup directly, you know, they've qualified as hosts. They've not had much competitive football. Um, tactically, they just looked all over the place. I mean, even throughout the tournament, you can go back and you can pick out moments and think they're not the team that we thought they were. They've got a couple of star players who seem to hold this whole team together, and there's no, there's no cohesion there. But what, what are their next steps? I think it was it Scolari who came. I think it was Scolari who came out and said 
no need to press the panic button. 12 or 13 of these players will still be playing in the next World Cup. I was thinking, are you crazy? Which 12 and 13 would you take to the next World Cup? Exactly. You know, I think there's trouble ahead for them, I really do. Well, it's, I, I, th- I find that that sort of panic tends to go, th- you know, it sort of crosses different sports. You know, we've, we've spoken about England cricket and having to make step changes to the county game to improve their test match because we lost three series on the bounce. You know, I've, I think I saw something from the Brazilian president talking about how they, you know, they need to go back to the, the grassroots or, or sand roots of, of football in Brazil and, and make changes to, at right at the bottom level and you know, almost start again. And, and it's amazing how quickly people will hit the panic button. But saying that, they don't need to make changes at grassroots, but surely they need to make changes to that squad. They were, you know, they were woeful, especially at home. The whole crowd behind them, the whole country about behind them. I think that gives you a 12th man on the pitch. I really do, playing at home, um, especially in the World Cup. And they just, you know, they looked woeful. They well, didn't, it did in their quarter final, you know, they were not- you know, notably carried by that. And, you know, we, you know, the, some of the performances from Luis earlier in the tournament were pretty good, but I felt he showed his, his true colours in that. It's a lot of pressure for, for David Luiz because he's come in in this, in this semi-final. He's he's captaining the side in, in the absence of his you know, centre-half partner. Um, he's a very emotional man generally. Um, I just think the pressure may have got to him. I think he's but just... the pressure getting to you and you making mistakes in your defensive position. He was playing at centre-back with Dante who played his... Was that his first game of the tournament? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, was was going to be the weaker link. And so, like, I think two or three of those German goals, David Luiz was in the opposition's penalty area, having joined into an attack. And they were left with three at the back and they were just picked off. In that 20-minute that 20 period, you know, that was one of the most ruthless displays well, of, exactly, of the whole World Cup. They had the issue of Marcello bombing forward at left-back as well. And, again, it was just Germany just looking at uh, the space that they could exploit. A lot of it came down the right-hand side. Yeah, Alarm and, and, and Muller particularly out wide as well. And, um, yeah, there was just so much space that it was so easy for them. Do you reckon they were emotionally charged, but especially missing Neymar? And, you know, what was all that crying with the, with the shirt at the oh, start? It was, and oh, I don't think the head was awful. in the right place. They weren't focused on the game. He hadn't died. It was. <laughs> you'd, th- you'd think he had. Exactly. You know, it was... It was yeah, exactly. Their, their heads weren't in the game. They were, they were... It was like they were trying to do it for Neymar. And it was... Yeah, it was awful. It was... Not what you'd expect from such a what you expected to be a strong uh, Brazilian side, but I mean they they've gone out in the semi-finals, and um, I didn't even watch the third place playoff because it's the most pointless match in football. Yeah, um, I just I, I I think they failed to actually play to that squad's strengths. If you see what I mean, it, it wasn't a squad that was going to be able to play the traditional Brazilian way where. Well, centre backs can go and join in an attack and, and end up on the, on the end of it and score. You know, they, they haven't got the quality and the, and the players to do that. Um, yet, yeah, I think they tried to play that way and it and came. Well, that, that's the thing. Um, a couple of people were saying as well that they got to the semi-finals by um, being quite brutish about uh, getting you know, getting star men out and 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 particularly in the midfield with Luis Gustavo and and uh, Ramirez and and Fernandinho being quite a sort of. Uh, you know, using their strength and using their power to to batter uh, midfields out the way, and they probably got to the semi-finals. And thought, right, nobody's really, you know, people are criticising us for this. Maybe we've got to play some football now. But um, I don't know if it was that, but they they hardly put a foot in in terms of making challenges in that semi-final. They were they were just a little off, um, and you can put it down to whatever. But I th- I think, I mean, some of them are, are, are young players as well, and maybe. Again, maybe this enormous pressure which the Brazilian nation had put on them. Uh, it was a home World Cup. They're, they'd not won the, the tournament since 2002. It's kind of an entirely new generation of players. 
Uh, they wanted to put their mark on it. And, it, yeah, if they had won the World Cup, it would have been probably one of the worst Brazilian sides to win the World Cup. Um, but, hey, we're not talking about Brazil. We're talking about uh, Germany. And uh, naturally, in the English media uh, today, recording this on a Monday evening, the day after the final, naturally, in the English media, all they're talking about is this is what England should be doing. You know, this this long game plan, you know, after Euro 2000, Germany had rebuilt that entire squad. Um, I mean, forget as well, Germany lost in the group stages in Euro 2000, lost to England, 1-0, Alan Shearer scored, and then qualifying for the 2002 World Cup, they lost to England 5-1, and they were in the middle of just starting this whole, you know, rebuilding the youth system, and 2002 World Cup was one of their worst ever teams. Still got to the final, mind you, but, you know, and they just rebuilt it. And the youth side in 2009, 2010 had a lot of these players who are in the side now. You know, you've got Botang, you've got yeah, Lahm and Schweinsteiger and these kind of players. They were coming through then. And Tony Cruz as well and Muller. Um, the list goes on. Um, but it's, so they're it's a team, aren't they? They're a they're team. A team. There's no yeah. one star man in that team. There's not a Neymar, there's not a Messi, there's not a Ronaldo. They're a team and that's why I'm glad they won. Mm, indeed. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I know what you, you say, the sort of media clamour to find this style, embed it within, you know, England youth football and then, you know, sides grow up playing it and it's it's just a transition between teams. But you've got to know what that style is and, and the sort of football that England want to play and then have the skills and the right people to do it. Um, do you think it's more that, that, the style and then, you know, doing that than well, it is the influx of foreign players, all the other external factors? Oh, there's you know there's a million one factors, aren't there? But but surely I've, for me that's the biggest one: the amount of foreigners playing in the Premier League, not giving the English players a chance. I think it's simple, no? I don't, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's ever simple. I think yeah, if you look at the the strength of the the Bundesliga and the amount of English players, uh, German players that choose to stay in that in that league, um, you know, it's, it's obviously a factor. I don't know. I mean, I've I've always been of the anyway. I've always been of the view that young English players should go abroad. When you're 17, 18, 19, go for a season, go abroad, play a trade in, in Italy or Germany or Holland or somewhere like that. You'll come back as a 19, 20-year-old man and they'll be so much more mature. You know, you get all these people, you know, and they're, they're hyped up in a half-decent championship side or something like that. Um, and the media will hype them up and then they'll get a big, big, too big for their boots, big ego, that kind of thing. But they stay grounded out, out there because they've got to. But you can't make players, British players go abroad. No, no, but you can put can't. rules in that a certain amount of British players have to play in the Premier League. And I think that's the difference. You have no control over that, but you can have control over your own league. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. Yeah, but at the same time, you're just limiting. You know, there'll always be a way to get around it for the for the top sides. Uh, we have these, um, you know, the, the financial fair play and the amount of homegrown players. Um, there's always ways around it. You know, the the 25 man squad in the Premier League don't have to count under 21 year olds at the moment. So you can have as many foreign under 21 year olds as you like, um, and you only have to count so many. That's just a cop out to say that. It's, oh, it's there's, always, there's always ways around it. Make exactly. sure that there aren't ways around it. Yeah, but then you're impacting. I don't, I don't think the Premier League has that that sort of power anymore. Unfortunately, I think the beast has grown to a level where. Their influence. Clubs are a business. They're, they're they're there to make money. If you look um, at the, you look at the Bundesliga, I think that is, I think it's probably primary goal is to produce players for Germany. Can you say that about the Premier League anymore? And it's 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 got a far more global reach, mm. um, and you know people want to see the best players in the world playing in it. Like obviously, I understand from an English fan's point of view, you need you need more English players to be playing and get an exposure at that level. And undoubtedly, there's less and less of a chance well, the, for them to do that. The Premier League is always seen as a breeding ground for 
top foreign stars to emerge as well. Top European and South American players will come over, not as the finished product, but as this player who's got a lot of potential, a lot of promise. And then they will get sold on. I mean, you look at the big money transfers. They've all been out of England rather than coming into England. We spend, you know, 30 million or something like that on players, maybe a little bit more, 35, 40 million would be the upper limit. Um, whereas other clubs will regularly spend that and will go beyond to get the, the real world-class. We don't buy in world-class players. We produce them, whether they're English, whether they're Spanish or South American or whatever. That's that's what the Premier League does. It's not, it's not. It's, it doesn't care about England. It doesn't care about English talent. And uh, I think we've just got to find another way around that. I don't think you know. I don't think fans really do either. You ask the question, club or country, most well, people will, yeah. will say club. Um, that saddens having, me. <laughs> but I was having this conversation with uh, with a Dutch friend of mine, and he was like, oh, country every time. He was actually mesmerised. I actually posed the it's question. The same with it. It's the same. They, there's so much focus on the German national team as well out in, out in Germany. And like you're saying, in Holland, um, in pretty much every country, I would say. That I think England are certainly in the minority and that they don't really care. And maybe it's just a vicious cycle. Maybe they don't care because it's got to this stage where the clubs have, like you said, the beast has grown, Jim. Um, maybe that has just resulted in the fact that yeah we're not as interested in the national team. It's a, it's a shame. Cause... It's almost a hobby. You yeah. Know, aside yeah. from the business side of it, you know, like the passion that we all have for the teams we've supported since we were, you know, yay high. It's it probably goes beyond what you feel for your country. You know, when you I don't know whether whether it's got something to do with expectation levels or the fact that. You know, club will always come first, but I think when the tournaments come round, the big tournaments, we do. But when it comes to the qualifiers, we're not really that interested. Friendlies, we're definitely not interested. You ask, you know, the majority of people who watched England in the three games in the World Cup, how many of the qualifiers they saw. No exactly. one really cares, no. but we still have that expectation and hope when it comes to tournament time. But yeah, people aren't as interested, and therefore people don't have that knowledge. And then you just get that awful, oh, we should be beating Ukraine. Uh, away from home or something because people don't know enough about international football Ukraine are a decent side They're, and to, you know we got a draw away from them for example in the qualifiers for this World Cup we did alright we got into the, but again is, is it a case of doing alright or is it a case of trying to build something to excel build something for uh, to, yeah, to do something really special and uh, yeah we've just we've got to work out what it is we want to build and then we've got to work out how to build it we're going over old ground here with England but we've we've all said it we've got 11 players who individually are great great players are they not? yeah I'd say at least 6 or 7 of them are abs- really great players that are in the England starting I'd 11 say great players better good, than the Ukraine for, players better than good for instance yeah great is a on an individual it's a strong basis. word, but uh, yeah, you've got some some quality individual players. Quality yeah. international standard individual players that should not be going out at group stage. The amount they're earning week by week. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, if you're basing it again, if you're basing it on that, you're not gonna. If you're basing it on entirely on how much they earn, then yeah, they should. And what be they've world achieved champions. at club level. It's an entirely different thing there because yeah, so, you, so come... did Spain and they didn't knit together well yeah. in this World Cup, did they? Mm. Point. Uh, hey doesn't matter because we've still got the Euros to contend with. We'll be qualifying for those um, starting in September. Can't wait for that. I'm sure you guys can't either. Looking at the excitement on your faces. Maybe we need. this is what we need to do. We need to figure out how to change the look on your faces when I talk about qualifying for Euro 2016. Exactly. That's what we want. Um, okay. Any other particular highlights from the World Cup? One, if you could pick out one moment, what would you go with? Tim Cahill. Volley. No. Oh, I, yes. I, I love Tim Cahill. I follow Australia quite a bit. Um, oh, that was just 
so awesome. He's got such a cult following in Australia as well, he does. which is brilliant. Yeah. I think the rise and um, a similar cult following which happened in a, another English-speaking nation over in the States with Tim Howard in his second round match, uh, his heroics saving so many shots and and just, uh, yeah, um, that is when the the fans out, of, out in the States really yeah, got to grips with football and thought, yeah, this is amazing, we love... And they, they just fell in love with Tim Howard. Uh, he got a call from the president. Um, even though they lost, he just said, hey... That's some that's some good goalkeeping there, um, yeah. Tim Howard, man, a few words Barack Obama. He did, yeah. Well, yeah, he doesn't like to mix it up. So. My highlight's got to be it's got to be the bite, the bite, the bite. Forgotten about the bite. How did I forget about the bite? How could you forget about the bite? It just well, no one saw it coming. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone expects it, but no one saw it coming. No you one gave thought you'd do it again. To get their teeth into it, um, indeed. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> hey, I do the puns here, Jim. Um, <laughs> no. Um, that was just it was completely shocking it shook the world i think yeah you know america took notice you know all the countries you wouldn't necessarily you know would imagine they're interested in football were were taking notice it was just crazy it's bit it's weird speaking of uh, suarez as well actually I just wanted to bring up the fact that he he has said uh, he's disclosed with one of his new teammates at barcelona uh, that he won't bite again oh, okay that's um, good um boyer cried wolf obviously it's just it, He's going to do it. It's again. when you tell non-footballing fans, "Oh yeah, he's done it before." Yeah, like, yeah, twice before. <laughs> it's just like... And they're like, "And you're all right with this? What is going on?" <laughs> yeah, um, it's weird though, isn't it? Because he's he's now signed for Barcelona. Um, looking over the whole weird biting uh, incident, plural. Uh, he signed for Barcelona for seventy-five million pounds estimated, which is the third highest um, transfer fee ever paid. Um, but he's banned for four months from all footballing. It, uh, activity, which also means that he can't be unveiled in the traditional Barcelona He's way. Of... Weirdly superimposed oh, electronically, isn't it? <laughs> they spent all that money on uh, on on Suarez, seventy five million. Obviously, cut the budget for the photoshopping editor in the, uh, the new camp. It's just weird, weirdly. Two thumbs up as well, you know, fond style. But uh, yeah, they can't they can't unveil him at the new camp in front of ninety thousand, or not until November or something. Anyway, um, it's, you know, like, yeah, he's surely. Yeah. Surely, in sort of last chance saloon, in terms of playing for for big clubs, you'll have a few more chances at Barca. I think if you've paid that much money, they're not going to. Aside from the biting, you know, I, I'd completely forgotten that he was the man on the line in 2010, denying Ghana with a handball and I then smiling I, after he'd been sent off. Yeah, I, I, I and don't Barca, blame him for that. Though. Take Barca uh, as an well, example. They've had. Do you hear that? He said he don't blame him for that. I said the exact same thing to Jim last night. We had a little bit of a disagreement. Look, no, I'm sorry, you. You know what punishment you're going to get. You're going to, your team are about to go out of the World Cup at the quarterfinals. You're going to handle it on the line. You get sent off. Whatever happens after then happens. They save the penalty, lost in the shootout. Suarez is he got red carded, so he's punished for it. The ref saw it. That's the highest punishment you can give somebody on a football mat, uh, pitch during the game. He was suspended for the next match. He took the punishment, which is in the rules. Um, Serve the punishment. Um, if you if you want to, you know, what else do you do? What else do you do? I'm, I'm, not, saying he should have been, I'm not saying he should have been banned for it. I'm saying it's like just but, but I think the conversation on his awful character. The conversation we had was that if Rooney did it, I think the country would applaud him for yeah. doing it. If we'd got him, you didn't think so. You thought, yeah, I'd, no, I'd, but you I'd, can feel free to disagree with me. Isn't it? I, don't. I will, I will. I'm not, I'd be more than happy if a, if an England player or, or any player which you know, I was following. Uh, did that uh, to get us through in in a world, particularly a World Cup quarter final as well. You know, England not made the semi final since 1990. Say they did that now, um, of course you would. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, the the punishment is is being dealt with. You know, you've 
you're going to be suspended for the next game. So what's the it problem? It just shows our true colours. Jim's a nice he does. boy. He is. He's too nice. He's too nice. Horrendous people. Um, bit of a domestic you know, won't, won't go too much. I mean, we talked to Alexis Sanchez as well. Good signing for Arsenal. Has to be an excellent signing. Um, he'll fit in well. I mean, he'll fit in well anywhere, won't he? Um, but Spurs news. Spurs news. You've got a new stadium coming on the way. Uh, permission's been granted to... Uh, start the the building of the new White Hart Lane, fifty eight thousand seat stadium, right next to the current White Hart Lane. Um, you've got to be happy with that. It's, it's taking you guys in the right direction, isn't it? I think yeah. I think the last bit of that sentence is the the important bit. You know, it's right next to the current site. It's not going to take away from a community that needs that needs that football club to be there. There was a huge worry that we were going to move to Stratford um, a couple of years back, which thankfully didn't go through. Um, and yeah, you know, I, th- I think if you look at, I saw a stat last year about the top clubs and their their ticket revenue, you know, week on week, and it, it's it, it's a massive it's a massive loss to Tottenham in terms of well, Manchester United their are power. They're, they're taking more than double in terms of capacity and attendance for each game. Uh, yeah, they're taking seventy five, seventy six. You're taking thirty five at the moment. Um, it, it yeah, exactly. It just hampers your your transfer budget, your playing budget. The, how much you've got to to play with in terms of you know, your day to day operations of that club, um, and yeah, it'll only serve to to help you guys out and 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 push you closer to that that the top echelons of the uh, of the league. Definitely. I mean, I, I just hope that you know because what I lane at the moment it's got a real you know it's, it's a really fantastic atmosphere. It's one of those grounds you you still feel very intimately involved with the game and you sort of feel very close to the action. You know, I think when Arsenal moved away from Highbury, I actually used to used to love going to watch games at Highbury because of that phenomenal atmosphere. And I think the Emirates is a, a little bit more of a sort of, I don't know, really. Um, yeah, it's 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 got better. The Emirates. It's probably one of the best stadiums in the country, um, aesthetically, and uh, you know the facilities on site and yeah. just generally how it is. Sixty. Um, but yeah, I mean the atmosphere was lacking a bit. I think that's got better now with time. We should have gone um, one more seat than the Emirates. <laughs> Just one that one yeah. upmanship, yeah. I think they're doing a lot for the community. I think they're building a college at White Hart Lane as yeah, well. Yeah, they've got. A, I think they've got a, a giant retail park as well, which they're, they're building, which obviously create lots of jobs in the area. Have a Primark? Jim probably, probably will. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of, uh, you mentioned Stratford, by the way. Uh, I went. I went on a little uh, tour of Stratford a couple of weeks ago for, for my day job. And uh, it's, it was interesting just l- looking around the Olympic Park because it's, it's now a very sort of peaceful parkland area. You know, you've got all of these venues in between, you know, which are you know, like Leisure Centre at the Copper Box and the Aquatic Centre is just a fully operational public swimming pool now and things like that. And the stadium, you know, it's fantastic, obviously, but it just it seems so weird that, you know, in a couple of years' time, we're going to have you know, 40, 50, 60,000 West Ham supporters flooding and ruining that park. Um, well, come debatably, Oof. general football fans, football Oof. fans coming in. Someone's watched Green Street too many times. I have, haven't I? Yes. Uh, we shall move on uh, because we talked about football quite a bit now. Um, cricket, cricket. What a weird Test match that was. I think weird probably sums that up. Yeah. And it, it, it was a very, very flat wicket, very lifeless pitch. Uh, nothing really going there for the bowlers, and uh, everyone was lambasting the the poor groundsman. He, he got it. He was named as well. I can't, don't even remember his name, but he, yeah, he was interviewed and and he said, yeah, I've, had, I've probably made a couple of mistakes in the preparation, um, maybe covering something up, uh, potentially. Now we discussed this last week, didn't we? But, yeah, you, you either take a cynical view on it or you don't, but the the facts remain that the ECB asked for a pacey track a week out, 
um, and, and Trent Bridge didn't deliver it. And you'd, you'd think that will go against their their future allocations for international matches because no one really wants to see that that type mm-hmm. of cricket. Although you can't really say that we haven't been entertained. No, in, it's been a, it's been a fantastic. I mean, for a draw as well, it's been a fantastic match. Um, yeah, we had the the first innings for India. Yeah, they were what three forty for nine, and you thought three fifty on this pitch, get them out for that first innings. That's excellent. But they put on that one hundred plus uh, last wicket partnership, and and uh, they went for four fifty seven, I think it was. And yeah, you thought okay, you're into day two now. It's 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 a real struggle. England um, had a bit of a collapse as well themselves. Uh, traditional England batting collapse. Cook. Uh, didn't make the runs, and then the the wickets fell and fell, and they were what two hundred for seven. Yeah, um, looking like it might be a struggle to avoid the follow on, uh, in which case it would have been nigh on impossible to win that match. Um, but hey, Jimmy Anderson can back, can't he? Jimmy Anderson making eighty one, the uh, the highest uh, score when England number eleven. Uh, he put on the highest him and Joe Root, who made one hundred and fifty odd not out. But the highest uh, last wicket partnership in Test history, 198, um, which broke the record Ashton Agar made last year at Trent Bridge, almost a year to the day as well. Um, yeah, it, it was fantastic to see Jimmy do that, I and mean, it shows the kind of the pitch because Jimmy, Jimmy Anderson, let's let's face it, he is like a rabbit in headlights, isn't he? When it comes the to top score before that was 34, which is decent. Never made a 50 mm. in, in in Test cricket. Um, it's a shame he didn't get three more runs because uh, I think Graham Swan's highest test score was 84 mm. and you can imagine there would have been a good bit of banter around in the in the press this week if he managed to surpass him but yeah I mean two century partnerships for the 10th wicket you know it doesn't it doesn't suggest it was a great wicket to, to play test cricket on um, but you know importantly you know real battle from you know from Root and Anderson there um, and Broad as well Broad's counter attack on that I think third evening was was phenomenal and, and nice to see him sort of return to that swashbuckling form which we like to see. You know, he's a, he's a boundary hitter, but he hasn't really performed for quite a long time, so that was that was encouraging. And Broad was also impeccable with the ball during this game. I, th- I felt, considering the conditions, I thought he bowled phenomenally well. Um, you know, it was not helpful for people like Anderson who who need movement to to be as effective as they'd like to be. I thought they both gave a, a pretty good account of themselves. Um, I don't know. I mean, what are your what are your thoughts on, on on sort of what England need to do before the next test? Well, they what need, should happen? They need they need a spinner in, don't they? They they need somebody. I mean, Simon Carrigan has been recalled to that side for their second test, which starts on Thursday at Lords. Um, uh, my views on Cook have been well established in last month's uh, podcasts, uh, various weeks. Uh, he needs runs and it doesn't seem like he's anywhere close to getting them and you've just got to stick with him that, that's what they're going to do they're how long stick do you with stick with the whole series? series yeah and then if if not that, I, mean, Cal, I think I know, you really have to ask questions I, I know Cal you feel that he should step down or, or be removed but do you think he actually needs to come away from the team as a whole or he just plays as a batsman or? no I think he needs to step down I think we we stick with him he's a quality batsman we know he is there's the times you know down under when everyone's calling for him to be dropped and he had a phenomenal series we know he's a great batsman I just don't think he can handle the pressure of being captain on the surface of it he's got everything he's got all the credentials to be a great captain but he's just not performing. And I don't think he's really ever performed great as a captain. He's had a few lucky series um, where, you know, the, the seamers have helped him out. There's some great battings helped him out. But I, I genuinely think it's time for him to go. He, he can have a great test career, be an all-time leading run scorer. Um, I just think it's time for someone new. 
who that new person is, I don't really know. I wouldn't particularly like to give it to Root because I don't want to mess up the you know the form that he's in. Um, yeah, and it's difficult to think who else could come in. Um, but I, I genuinely think you know two more two more tests and he doesn't score a fifty. And I think you've got to seriously consider getting him out before the end of the series. Yeah, it's, it's such a you know I, I find it very hard to argue with the fact that he hasn't he hasn't made a he hasn't made as good a captain as people probably thought he would um and what his perhaps what his credentials suggested he would um i th- i think i don't think he had lucky series in his first three i think they they probably carried on from the buzz that that sort of strauss left with um and that ashes win down under he averaged 75 over three series which is you know that's pretty consistent you consider the amount of test matches he would have played but since then that that decline has been worrying and it's been sharp as well i can't i can't think of another England captain that has started off so well um, in terms of their batting, but no Vaughan's, you know Vaughan's batting wasn't great when he started out. But Vaughan dropped down to three. Vaughan yep. opened, and uh, he uh, he has been vocal about this. And there's a there's a great podcast actually on uh, Test Match Special where they they talk about what it's like to be England captain. They have Alex Stewart on there as well, um, and and Vaughan just said, look, I had to drop down to three because when I. I I mean, I'm I'm no creator at all. But when you're fielding and you're trying to get this last man out, but I mean, you feel for Cook a bit in the in this particular Test match because yeah, he he was in the field for a long time trying to get this last um, this wicket. You know, they put on a great partnership in the, the the last Indian pair. And once you're nine down, surely then the as Cook is thinking, right, I've got to get my into the frame of mind of me batting now, me opening up and trying to trying to get somewhere close to this score. Um, but if it takes so long, that's quite draining. And then all of a sudden, you've got to switch straight away because it's a very short um, turnover between innings, isn't it? So um, perhaps you know, having to deal with the tactics of, of fielding so much and then coming it's a in. Fantastic, you know, it's a fantastic point, and it's, it's hard for any test batsman, opening batsman, regardless of whether you're captain or not, when that happens. Because, yeah, it's exactly what happens. You know, you get a team 8-9 down, you're thinking, oh, 9-10, Jack, I, I need to get myself, you know... You, and you do need to prepare yourself mentally to be a, a test opening batsman. It's a, it's, a, it's such a, a big um, ask to go out there, having been in you know a day and a half in the dirt fielding. Mm. Um, and I, I, yeah, I mean, I just don't, I don't see how he can continue just exhausting his mind. Jim, you posed um, the question to me that uh, should he just walk away from the team altogether? Say after two or three more poor innings. Can you drop him mid series? A, if you drop him mid series, what does that do to the team dynamics? B, can you drop him mid series but let him carry on playing in, in a batting capacity under another captain? Um, I, I don't think he's the sort of character that would kick up a fuss or, or you know, be a difficult character to manage. You know, I think. He's... I think your your main issue as well. Sorry to butt in there, but your main issue is if you drop him at the end of the series, there's no Test matches until the next summer. We don't we don't have a winter tour if I'm let, if I'm right in saying. It's a oh, lot of one days. It's, it's yeah. In fact, I'm right. It's all one days leading up to the uh, the World Cup next uh, February in Australia. So you drop him. I mean, you don't even have to make an announcement. You can, or you can. You know, what do you do? What do you do? It's the um, lack of a feasible option, really, that is the most worrying thing, and probably a contributing contributing factor as to why it probably won't happen. Um, I mean, you've got you've got big. Big names in international cricket coming out and saying that it should happen now. Alex Stewart, you know, he will always have a big voice and, and he's a voice that somebody will listen to um, in international cricket and, you know, huge in the English scene as well. And he said that, it, you know, to preserve this man's test career, 
he needs to step down as captain because it's ruining him and it's in danger of you know getting into that territory now. He he, you know, Cook is coming out with strong words. I, I know I need runs. I, you know, I know I'm one innings away, but words can only take you so far. You know, the, he's been saying that a lot, and I mean, I mean, yeah, he, he, he has to say doesn't that. Look like he's he just, has he's, to say yeah. that. The other guys, when they're interviewed as well, they have to defend and they have to say, look, one one more score, uh, one big score, and he's back in, and he's the Alistair Cook we all know and love and, and rely on. Um, but those problems that we've mentioned there, the fact that you spend a long time fielding and a long time having to... You know, every ball as a captain in, in an international game, you're doing something, you're manoeuvring a field, you're thinking about, you know, changes you're going to make. It is exhausting on your mind. So the I'll only tell time you what, he has to switch off is when, once he's back in the dugout. Yeah. yeah. I tell you, it almost would have been decent if um, we'd managed to bowl India out and even if we were chasing something which we were never going to get in a million years... Um, it, it would have been good if, if we would have got Cook back in uh, for his second innings and there'd just be no pressure on him at all and he'd just be able to just play his way Is in. Is that one innings going to make a difference? I really don't know if it will. Is this a sign of someone when, the, when he's under pressure as a captain, you know, he's, he's going to fail? And I, I don't think there's anything that will fix that. Um, you know, it, it, I might be being a bit pessimistic, but I, I think it's inevitable that he'll go. But I, th- I, th- I, think you are, I think you are being pessimistic. I think if Alistair Cook's making runs... Then when he's in the field, he's not thinking about oh I've got to go back in a minute because when you're when you're in form, you don't think about second round. That one innings can that one innings can change everything. Yeah, it really can. You know, mm-hmm. you've, how many you can you can cite so many times within people's. Career so I guess it's a bit happened. like football. You you need that one goal to keep get yourself going. If you're a striker who's lacking goals, yeah, but it, you know, it, I think the judgment call is how long they're prepared to wait for that one innings to come, um, and, and whether his captaincy is going to improve sufficiently. I still think we've seen some pretty poor. You know, actually, that's probably slightly unfair. I think there were he was way he was far far better in this test match than yeah. I mean, the pitch, the pitch itself. It was it was it was an awful wicket to bowl on, and he did try. He tried a lot of things um, in that first innings. Um, it wasn't for lack of trying. You know, being a there bit was, yeah, creative. Great and field like placements. That. You know, yeah. I don't know if any of you guys saw Ian Bell's catch at um, at silly mid on to get yeah. rid of Pajara. That's good capsy, good bowling, good plans, which is what we didn't see against Sri Lanka. So that's a positive to take out of that. Exactly. I think he's not afraid to be a little bit more creative now. Um, I mean, even if... Even, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, if if he was to stand down from the captaincy mid-series, who would get it? On an interim basis? I don't, think he'll, basis? I don't think he'll stand down mid-series. I, th- I think... I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if he sees himself. If he's already saying, Jim, he's already saying, I need runs, I need runs. It's obviously playing on his mind. Maybe he'll come to tipping point and he'll go, that's it, I need yeah, to step down. You know, in his own mind, he he may well be sitting there at the moment thinking, I can't take much more of this. And you can there? blame him for Who that. Who else is there? You know, the world, I know David Lloyd came out um, over he, the weekend. He won't and, captain, <laughs> I'd love to see that. I would love to see <laughs> Bumble captain England, but... Um, you know, he su- he suggested route, and you know, we, me and Jamie were speaking on the, on the way here. You know how quickly Angelo Matthews has been thrown into to Test captaincy, given that he'd only played about fifteen or sixteen games. Hot headed though, isn't he? Ru? We saw it in this Test match as well. He's a bit. He's well, a bit of a broad Ricky Ponting is probably one of the most hot headed cricketers I've ever seen mm. play, and he made a pretty good captain. Um, point. <laughs> I stand out. There's no, there literally go, nothing I can say to that. <laughs> Yep, point. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that's necessarily a problem. It's, it's whether you think he's going to make a significant difference to the side moving forwards. That's, you know, but they're, they're not in a position where they can afford to be picky if they do choose to get rid of Cook or if he, as we've mentioned, you know, has had enough personally and has to step away. 
Exactly, exactly. Um, and if he does step away, we are going to be missing his bowling as well. <laughs> Alistair we Cook. Um, Alistair Cook, wow. has, he got, he's got a test wicket. However, Gary Balance could be the answer for English spin. <laughs> Did you see his leg spin? Decent. Unbelievable. Very decent. Turn, drift, bounce. Exactly. Quality. Um, I mean, we should explain last last afternoon, uh, of, uh, day five yesterday, it was uh, it was clear the game was going for a draw. We've got a match at Lord starting on Thursday. Anderson and Broad are, are knackered. All the all the bowlers they've been you know flogged, aren't they, for fifty or sixty overs in this match, maybe even more. Um, so yeah, Cook and Balance had a go, and uh, Cook got a wicket uh, down the leg side, caught, caught behind. Will Will your international career? I was listening. I was listening to uh, I think it was Test Match Special on on Sunday, just following it, and uh, they said, oh. It's just it was it was pure filth what they were bowling. That's how they described it. Absolute filth. Um, and they said, "Oh, you wouldn't want to get out to this." And poor Sharma. I mean, how much do you be feeling? Al- Alistair uh, Cook's got well. He's he's got first class wickets. He did bowl for Essex early in his career. Seven, is it? Seven, um, six or seven. Yeah, I think he's got six. But and he was quite a prominent bowler in Premier League cricket when he was uh, was younger as well. But he's obviously not done it he's for quite a long time. Got an average of seven time. in Test match bowling now. Um, just one quick question I wanted to <laughs> one quick question I wanted to pose to Jim was Anderson got his eighty one. What is the golf between uh, sort of the number eleven batsmen if they went into I don't know the club scene? How how good are they? Yeah. What is the difference? Well, Monty Panazar has made quite a few hundreds in Premier League club cricket. And what levels Premier League? Well, you know that's the breeding ground for for county players. Right. So that's the highest level of club cricket you can play. So that's the, that's the difference. Yeah, in you, do, you wouldn't expect Anderson to go out and, and say average any more than thirty over a season in, in a good level of club cricket. But you know they you know they they are trained. They 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 train with international batting coaches, so they will pick up tips. And you've seen Anderson's got a vast array of shots, but it's the selection, you know. And he he also plays some horrible swipes, which could have got him out. You know, it's the 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 golf is the mental side of the game. That's what they just don't have, and obviously they're not as technically astute, but they can get by. So why don't we open with Anderson and Broad um, batting at Lords, and then just have Cook and Balance uh, opening the bowling? Because they might get killed. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen Anderson play good, good quick bowling, um, but he, he does struggle against the short he ball does, a bit. You're yeah, gonna, he does. yeah, you're not going to put him into the final. That's what he was saying after the Sri Lanka. Obviously, he, uh, he had another great batting display, which. Uh, uh, where he made a, a fifty-ball duck. Yeah, um, Anderson's been England's night watchman. He has, you know, yeah. lots over the last few years. He's probably but, one of uh, yeah, that's what you're saying. He's saying, yeah, I, I can, I can cope with spin. Um, I can cope with a, a full ball being tossed at me, but uh, a short ball. He said that's the only ball that's going to get me out, and obviously it did. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's interesting. It's interesting. Um, we mentioned second test. Carrigan's been recalled. Um, are we going to see him play at Lords? This is this is such an odd one for me. I mean, I think this is this is a real example of the media clamour having a having a big effect on on the selectors' minds. You know, they said we've we've got to have a spinner. You can't have Moen as a spinner. Um, you know, he's gone at fours, um, which is it's too much for a, a test spinner. Um, and Kerrigan's sort of been snuck in through the back door. You know, bowling at lunch times. We've seen him hanging around on the balcony. So I think they'll play him. Um, and he's Lord's impressed a, apparently in the nets as well yeah, over four days. Hey, Kerrigan's a quality bowler. You know, he's over sixty matches. He's got two hundred and fifty odd wickets um, at twenty-seven. I think he certainly should not be judged on eight overs at the Oval last year. Hey, he yipped up. You know, yeah. that's it's worrying because you know if that happens again, then you know there are big question marks over whether he does have an international career ahead of him. But he's, he's you know, he's the, he's the most consistent 
bowler out there in terms of how he performs. Um, how old is he? I, th- I think he, might, he must be mid-20s, 25, 26. There's also there's a young left-arm spinner at uh, Middlesex called Ravi Patel who's, who's you know, certainly his name's being bounced around um, the counties as, as being one of the best young spin bowlers out there. So I don't think it's quite a hopeless uh, situation as it has been made out. But it's, a, it's an odd place to bring a spinner in at Lords because we saw against Sri Lanka, it didn't turn very much there at all. Um, but they said they're going to judge it on the morning and see whether it is yeah. going to be a turning pitch. Would would you keep Moen, Ali? Would you keep him in the, the team? Bloke made you know an unbeaten hundred a game ago. I, I don't see how you can drop him. Um, and he's okay. a second choice spinner potentially. He's picking up wickets. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you know you've got you've then got him and Root as as other options to to rotate the seamers around as well. And suddenly there's a bit of balance to that. I think it would be it would be very strange to see Stokes come in for one game and then get pulled out but if you're looking at who's performed best with the ball Plunkett has bowled on some pretty unforgiving pitches for seamers this this summer and done incredibly well um so i think it'd be pretty hard to take him out of that side um but the the balance of the side isn't isn't quite right without without Stokes there with with his batting i don't think so um, please don't ask me what I would do for the second test because I don't have a straightforward answer for you at this stage. Okay, Cal, what would you do for the second test? I'd put all my faith in Mo and Ali. Yeah. <laughs> I saw a great all the Worcestershire fans wear a T-shirt saying, and it says the beard to be feared. <laughs> um, it is a good beard. I don't know what I'd do for the second test. I think you're right. It's, what, what do you do if it's not a turning pitch? You you keep the seamers. Do you try something? Do you bring Jordan back? Maybe at the expense of who? Plunkett. Plunkett's bowled well. They've all bowled well. I, I don't think that... I don't think the Trent Bridge pitch was a real indicator of how how the team are doing, Certainly and I think not. you probably should have to go with the same eleven again if you know if if that's what the pitch asks for. Yeah, you're probably right. You know, they have they have said that they they are going they are going over five tests they're going to have to rotate the seamers, and that does mean Anderson and Broad. You you can't have those guys bowling fifty overs a game and and running themselves into the dirt with you know it's there's no test matches but there's a a big long international schedule coming up as there always is. There's not um, that much turnaround either between all the tests. So. No, and that's that's the that's the key factor. And we, you know, it's having someone like Chris Jordan come in. Okay, it's for Anderson who might have the the most test wickets that an England bowler's ever taken, or pretty much. Um, it's you know, it's not someone you don't want in your team, but they're going to have to do it at some stage. Anyone else in the county scene that can come in, seamer wise? I don't. I think the guys that are in that squadron they're around the it at the moment are the ones that are, are being thought of. So, um, okay, yeah. okay. Um, Thursday at Lords. Uh, keep an eye out for that. Um, I, I think last week as well. Keep an eye out for when they start as well, because I said Thursday last week actually started on Wednesday. So um, if you were exclusively uh, keeping up to date with the England cricket team by listening to this show, you would have missed day one. Um, we're going to move to boxing. Uh, we're just coming up towards the end of the show, um, and we had a bit of feisty Saturday night, didn't we? Nathan cleverly, uh, he's, he's he won his match, I believe, and he's setting up. Um, a, a match with Tony Bellew so uh, yeah it was on f- Saturday night at the Echo Arena in Liverpool it was called Collision Course so you've got Nathan Cleverley you've got Tony Bellew uh, Tony Bellew, Bellew a scouser Cleverley from Wales Cle- Cleverley's a former world champion as well um, so they're both used to fight at light heavyweight and only recently they um, they both lost some high profile fights uh, at light heavyweight both moved up to cruiserweight um, and they've both had a couple of fights and they're on a collision course to meet again. First fight, anything to go by. Oh, my God. There's, you, talk about, <laughs> you talk about hatred between two boxers. You, f- you think Frotch and Groves hated each other. Yeah. Oh, these two take this it to another worse. level. They right. hate yeah. each other, absolutely hate each other. They've had press conferences where they've come to, you know, punches being thrown. 
Saturday night, they were both in action, hence the name Collision Course. Um, cleverly won his fight, um, and then Bellew was uh, the main draw, the final fight, and uh, Cleverly had finished his fight, went and sat in the front row, um, and it was almost as if it was... I want to say it was scripted, but you know they knew where to place cleverly after his fight. So Bellew knocks out his fellow in the I don't know, I think it was the fourth or fifth round or something. Who, by the way, was a great fighter, never been stopped. Bellew goes over to the uh, kicks some advertising boards to towards cleverly push and shove. Bellew's trying to get out the ring. Um, then the Sky uh, commentators are trying to interview him, and they're going head to head, and it was it was brilliant. And this is going to be the next big grudge match. Um, and it's great. It's another great grudge match in uh, in boxing. So yeah, that's one to watch. I think it will happen in November. Okay. Right. Um, and the winner will probably go on to fight for uh, a world title at cruiserweight, which isn't you know cruiserweight isn't the best division out there. So I wouldn't be surprised if one of them becomes a world champion. It's not the best division out there. No uh, cruiserweight. Uh, okay. No, no. So yeah, th- which is one of the reasons they moved up from light heavyweight to cruiserweight. You know, you're a boxer and you think I'm at light heavyweight. I've fought the best and I've lost, so I'm going to move up because the next weight category they don't seem so great, and yeah, I, I'll yeah. have more of a chance of winning a world title. It's also quite interesting that Bellew naturally he said that when he fought at light heavyweight, he had to lose a lot of weight, and when he was going into the fight, he didn't have the power. Cleverly, on the other hand, says the same, but I'm not sure I believe it. So Bellew looks a lot more comfortable at 200 pounds, whereas Cleverly doesn't. Um, but yeah, that's going to be another. I'm looking forward to the build-up more so than the fight. Um, you can ex- just expect so many fireworks. It won't have the same obviously appeal as Froch Groves, um, but it's going to it's going to have a, a mainstream appeal to not just the boxing fan. Okay, okay. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that. Any, um, any, go on. I was going to say on the undercard there as well. There's some there some great fights. There was a lot of the Olympic champions were there. So Anthony Agogo, he fought. It was just a good night out, wasn't it? Yeah, it was great. Yeah. I've never seen so many fights on a British card. They started at seven and it finished at midnight. Um, so they put on a great, great show. So Anthony Ogogo, um, he's actually um, promoted by Golden Boy Promotions, one of the big ones in America, but he was right. fighting on this one. And, of course, Anthony Joshua. So Anthony Joshua, the big heavyweight, um, he is going to be one for the future. He's a, he's a future world champion. Um, he he was fighting Matt Skelton. He's a former world title challenger, but he's forty seven, so he's an old boy. Wow! Um, and yeah, he, he knocked him out. So and a lot of people are saying with Anthony Joshua, when is he going to be tested? He's fighting nobody. The guy's had his seventh fight, and it's just because he's got this tag of an Olympic champion. People want to rush him in. How much? How much does that tag actually? Yeah, build up. I mean, Amir Khan fought at the Olympics as well. You get yeah. bronze, was that right? Yeah, he got silver. Silver, right? Yep. Yeah. How much does that really, you know, put so much pressure on these these fighters? Big time, big time to win a gold as well. Amir Khan won a silver, and there was a lot of pressure because he was fighting uh, Mario Kindelin, who was a Cuban great, and he lost to him in the final. Actually, went and avenged that defeat on this little show they put mm. on ITV. Um, so he had a lot of pressure. Um, you look at Audley Harrison. Believe it or not, when Audley Harrison came on, everyone expected big things. They were saying future world champion. Yeah, he flopped, completely flopped. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's huge pressure on him. There's pressure on Luke Campbell, who also won at the Olympics. Um, like I said, Anthony Ogogo. There's a lot of boxers, you know, who have got that. It's interesting how you've got so many different places to make your... I mean, is that really where a lot of them will want to make their name to go, you know, before they go pro? Or is it a case of a lot of them think they're good enough anyway? 
or do, do they really want to go for the for the Olympic shot? So some of them do. You see more in this country, um, you know, for example, Cuba. Cuba doesn't allow a lot of their boxers to go pro and they stay in the amateur ranks. Um, for that, for people, that is the real pedigree, you know, get to the amateur, learn your trade. Um, and they don't get paid too bad. I was reading the other day, they get... The, GB stars get about 60 or 70k a year um, through sponsorship and everything but the thing is you get an Olympic gold medalist or you, if you get an Olympic gold medal or you win a world championship at amateur level the promoters are going to be knocking on your door and they're going to be offering you the kind of money you could only dream of so yeah everyone wants that gold medal um, and it gets you the big fights Did you hmm. say Joshua only had seven professional fights? Seven professional fights and he's knocked them all out within two rounds that's that's pretty amazing. You know, we watched that young um, Mexican fighter Alvarez. Oh, yep. Was it Saturday, Saturday night, night as well? And he'd had forty six professional yeah. fights at the age of what 23, 23. 20, It was about to turn twenty four, isn't he? Yeah. So you know, just perhaps shows that you know we are heaping way too much pressure on this guy. Uh, you know, fledgling sort of part of his career. Really, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned him. Uh, Alvarez was he fought Mayweather last time around and lost to him, but. He turned professional at 15. 15 he turned professional. He's now, like you said, he's going to be 24 um, next month, I think. And he's had over 40-odd professional fights. Um, so he's not gone down the amateur rank. But yeah, that, I thought that was a crazy stat. Turning pro at 15. 15. It's a cultural thing, probably more than anything, isn't it? But I couldn't even get myself dressed at 15, let nah. alone get in a ring. Struggled. Struggled indeed. Um, we're, I'm afraid that we have run out of time. It's a good time. note to finish on, though. It is a good note to finish on. Um, uh, before we go, just want to mention as well the, the uh, Golf Open Championship up at Liverpool starts on Thursday. Uh, Phil Milkerson looking to defend that claret jug. Uh, Justin Rose has uh, he won the warm up the Scottish Open. Uh, it's a good prep for for Lynx Golf. Uh, very uh, blustery courses out by the uh, out on the coast. There uh, he won that. Moved up to third in the world rankings with that win. So uh, he's in decent nick. Um, as are well, a lot of the other. Uh, the big guns as well but we'll wait and see what happens over the weekend um, we were going to talk um, the whole issue of uh, rugby and uh, Welsh rugby and central contracts and uh, I was going to go into into that in a, in a sort of wider context but we may do that when we return in two weeks because we're not here next week um, so yeah we'll be back in two weeks cheers uh, for joining us this evening Cal Jim thanks uh, if you want to get in touch email address is shortitsport at gmail.com and you can tweet us at Sports Licorice. This is Licorice All Sports on Short Show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time. <laughs> <laughs>